Well, the Word of God records many last words. In his final speech at age 110, that great military genius of the Old Testament declares, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. When Peter asked a woman if she sold some land for a particular price, she replied, Yes, that was the price. Her final words. And surprised to learn that they would be his final words. A Philistine asked, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Well, this morning we read famous last words. Now, to be clear, he who spoke them is very much alive. But they were the last words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. We hear from Matthew one last time as he shares the life of the Lord with us. Now, four authors do this. You know that there's four different gospel accounts, and each of them conclude in different ways. Mark, for example, ends quite abruptly. Luke records the ascension of Jesus up to heaven. John finishes letting us know there's so many things the Lord has done, I can't even write enough to describe them. Well, Matthew, Matthew ends with something we call the Great Commission. It's a final charge by Jesus given to Christians to make Christians. And this is a good news sermon for you and I. Because we may have some ideas on how to do this. There are many different ideas on how to do this, how to build a church, how to win people to Jesus. There are books and blogs and conferences and retreats and seminars and Jesus. This morning, he weighs in. And in a sea of voices, this is a great help for you and I. Because if I'm reading you right, you want to see this church flourish. You want to see this church continue on into this century. You want to see this church do it God's way. You want to know that the lost would would know the Jesus Christ that you know. And you want to be used by the Lord. Now the Lord instructs us, and he tells us how to build a church. And I think that we understand that there is nothing better than for each of us to use our one life for the glory of God. To go all in for Jesus Christ with this single life that he gives us. And one of the highest privileges, we might even call it a standard duty, is to make disciples. And this morning Jesus tells us how to do that and how to leave a legacy. It's called the Great Commission, and in this Great Commission, Jesus gives us three means to make disciples, three ways we ought to go about it. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, we conclude, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, the main portion of our message will come today in verses 18 through 20. That's essentially the charge that Jesus gives disciples. But I want to locate this command, this charge, just as Matthew does. We'll start with verses 16 and 17. Eleven disciples arrive at a mountain somewhere in Galilee. We don't know which mountain this is. But we know in our account last time, Jesus gave instructions to meet there. He told the two Marys, he encountered two after his resurrection, tell my disciples to come and meet me at the mountain. That seems like a fitting location for a final charge, especially as we think about this gospel. I wonder if memories didn't come back as they met at this mountain. Jesus preached a great sermon upon a mount. Jesus met alone in prayer with God upon a mountain. Even a miraculous event called the Transfiguration took place there. So one last time they gather to look out upon Galilee. I should say this is not the first time his disciples saw the risen Jesus. Jesus appeared to ten disciples the evening, the, the Sunday of his resurrection. One week later he reappeared to them. This time there were eleven. Thomas joined them. But that's what makes verse 17 a bit confusing. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. The first half of that makes sense. They knew about Jesus. They knew he rose from the dead. They worshipped him. So why are some doubtful? Well, I should say first that this word has more to do with a hesitation than it does an unbelief. This word appears only one other time, as a matter of fact, and it's Peter on the Sea of Galilee, and he's walking on water, instructed by Jesus, but he becomes frightened, and he cries out, Lord, save me. And Jesus asks him, you have little faith, why do you doubt? Here again, the word is more about hesitation than it is unbelief. Well, you can imagine then that there's different solutions offered to this doubt happening in verse 17. Some believe it had to do with a a resurrected Jesus, the, the body of a resurrected person. His resurrection appearances at times were fuzzy, we might say that. You recall the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they were walking along, but they didn't immediately recognize Jesus. Perhaps that's what happened here at the mountain. Other people see a a mixed audience or a split audience in verse 17. Some of the 11 disciples worshiped Jesus, but some of them were doubtful. Others see 11 disciples worshiping Jesus and others yet beyond them doubtful. Disciples, but just not of the 11 disciples. Well, whatever the right answer is here, The question for you and I this morning is, is, do I doubt? Am I doubting the resurrected Jesus? And if I do, if I struggle with doubt, what what do I do about that? 
How do I resolve that? I think sometimes if we feel doubtful, we might think about the Lord and how he responds to that. And then we believe, oh, of course God must be done with me, and we feel doubly discouraged. Not only are we doubting, but we're discouraged that, that God would look down upon that doubt. Well, we need to remember that the Lord has a long, successful history with doubters. There's Moses and Gideon and Peter, and the list goes on. And God knows how to help you in doubt. You know, answering this question is so much broader scripturally, but I believe even in our text this morning, there's answers to this question. I want you to see first in verse 18 that Jesus holds all authority. Remember this when you doubt. Christ is in control. What does doubt do? It raises questions. And in response to that, Jesus gives a statement. He doesn't say to this group of worshipers and doubters, he doesn't say to them, stop your doubting. He says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. He says, essentially, I am in control. A great truth to remember when we doubt. Secondly, looking further down at the end of verse 20, Jesus also says, I am with you always. Jesus is not with you to to trick you or to harm you. He's not with you to play games with your life. Jesus is with you in the fullness of who he is for you. Jesus is for you. Remember all we've learned about him through the Gospel of Matthew, all of his amazing and wonderful attributes. Jesus is for you. I think in the context of this statement that he makes, it's a statement of comfort. And a statement of encouragement, it's meant to lift us up, even the doubters. Well, the third solution for doubt, situated between verse 18 and verse 20, what do I do about my doubts? Jump. Jump. You just step out in trust. You notice the charge that Jesus gives in verse 19. He's giving this again to those who worship, but he's also giving this charge to those who doubt. I'm envisioning here a first-time skydiver. Have you ever gone skydiving? Never have, never will. (laughs) It's terrifying. I can just imagine standing at the open door of that plane, 10,000 feet up. I'm looking down, and it's time to jump. All of the training and instruction have led to this. It's the reason I shout out all that money for some reason. And and, I'm just clutching at the the frame of that door with my nails digging into the paint. And I'm going over my mind again and again, why did I do this? I'm doubting, I'm hesitating, and as I turn to tell the instructor strapped to my back that I don't want to do it, I'm out of the plane. 10,000 feet, a 30-second free fall, 120 miles an hour. You see, stepping through that door, it may be scary. And we know in life that hesitation happens. We're going to hesitate at times when the Lord calls us to do things or we read things in his word and we're convicted and we know we need to change. But to that, I believe Jesus says, jump. You can trust me. I'm in control. I think we need to consider these truths if we're doubting this morning. 
who the person of Jesus is and the, and the promises we read. And perhaps, if I'm right, this call to jump. But I do want to turn to the heart of the message, the heart of this passage today. It's the words that Jesus spoke in those last few verses. It's the word of our Lord on disciple-making. Three means to make disciples. It's our first point this morning. God makes disciples when we go. God makes disciples when we go. Verses 19 through 20, I want you to notice that those two verses contain only one command, one imperative. It is to make disciples. The temptation in this passage is to focus on the first word, it's the word go. That word, however, is one of three words used to describe how to make disciples. Go, which could be translated as going, is going to work together with the word baptizing, is going to work together with the word teaching, and it's through these three means that we make disciples. And that's really our outline this morning, going and baptizing and teaching. It's how to make disciples. Now, in the time of Jesus, a young boy, as he's growing up and maturing, he would attach himself to a rabbi or a teacher. And the saying goes, may you be covered with the dust of your rabbi. You can imagine that. You're, you're following your teacher so closely that the dust of his sandals is covering you, the student. That's what's envisioned by this idea of discipleship or disciple-making or following. And we know that when Jesus came, he became the rabbi, the teacher, the teacher of all teachers. So we say that a disciple is a follower of Jesus Christ. May we be covered in his dust. In the Gospel of Matthew, he has spent good energy through 28 chapters to teach us what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. A disciple is someone who responds to the call of Jesus and follows. A disciple is someone who repents and believes upon the gospel. A a disciple obeys the teachings of Jesus, endures persecution, confesses Christ before men, fears God. He loves God more than his family. He takes up his cross or her cross and follows Jesus. He hears the words and understands the words and bears fruit. He professes that you are the Christ, the, the Son of the living God. A disciple confronts sin. A disciple forgives others. A disciple serves others. A disciple makes disciples. When we go. To explain this point, this idea of going, I want to clarify three misconceptions that, that get drawn out of this initial call. The first misconception is that you need to travel to make disciples. You need to travel to make disciples. Verse 9, excuse me, verse 19 begins with the word go. You saw that word there. It's going to tell us where, where? To all the nations. Now, don't get me wrong. This verse has great application for foreign missions. God calls some people to pick up and travel to another nation, better yet, a different people group, and to proclaim the gospel to them missionaries. By all means, they should heed that call and travel and go. But there's more to this than just that. Back in Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, Jesus sent disciples to Israel. 
to the Jewish people alone. And this is what he said. He said, do not go in the way of the Gentiles or the non-Israelites. Do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now he's saying, I want you to go to all the nations, go to all the peoples. And this happened a little further back in Matthew. There was a change in the program where the disciples no longer went just to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel became hard-hearted and rejected Jesus in the gospel. So he changed his program. He began to speak in parables. You may remember that, Matthew chapter 13. But in our text today, he now gives explicit instructions to go to all peoples with the gospel. But don't book that flight. Not yet. Because I contend this morning that you don't need to fly anywhere to obey this call. The gospel has remarkably, praised the Lord, made its way around the entire globe. There still are unreached people groups. There's good work being done to reach them. We mentioned missionaries, for example. But you and I must make disciples even in this nation. You and I have a sphere of influence. You have an audience that no one else has. You have an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ that nobody else does. The lost, the unsaved, the disbelieving. Jesus says, go and make disciples. You don't need a plane. You don't need a passport. You don't even need a dollar. You just need to share Christ. You never need to leave this country to obey this command. Misconception number two. You must be a professional to make disciples. No, you don't. You do not need to be a professional. You don't need charisma. You don't need years of Bible study. You don't need to have the gift of evangelism. You just need to be a disciple. I believe there's something that I would call the doctrine of discipleship that's quite popular in the West. It goes something like this. A a local church pays a pastor and gives to missionaries, and their job is to share the gospel. Their job is to make disciples. They, and maybe some other elders, work at this. And in exchange, the task of the Christian is to give financially while receiving a service. Some kind of teachings or events, outings with a local church. Maybe it's a Sunday morning service. But I'll tell you, friends, Jesus has a much better plan than that. He wants to use ordinary people, regular disciples, to make more disciples. Most of us don't have the gift of evangelism. I don't. I don't see massive rewards of fruit when I share the gospel with people. But we must share it nevertheless, because that's the call upon our lives. On some level, we ought to engage in evangelism. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ, someone came and gave that gospel to you. You hold it, but you also break it off and pass it on. You give that to someone else as well. That's the plan that Jesus had. You know, yesterday, Joel mentioned that we went out into Bellingham just to walk around town and meet people and pass out Bibles and share the gospel with them. 
We do this for some reasons. One reason is to give you an opportunity to help Emmanuel evangelize. Because I know the statistics. I know how many people actually share the gospel. And I don't want any of us to be that statistic. You see, what we want to do here is provide you with, with opportunities to grow in, in your ability to share the gospel. And maybe you come out to an event like that. Maybe you partner up and you see someone else sharing the gospel and you just walk along and see how to talk to people, how to begin a conversation. You get comfortable trying it out. You overcome your fears or get your questions answered. How, how do I do this? Maybe you recognize, you know what? I really don't share the gospel. And I want to. I want to get going. I want to obey the Lord in this. That's why we do things like that, because we want to help you and serve you and, and get you going in this. But apart from all of that, to be clear, you don't need to come to an outreach event to share the gospel. We all have family members and, and friends and so on who, who need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And the truth is, is that you may be the only Christian in their life. And God has given you their, their ear. You have the rapport, the ability to speak the good news into their life. As we said earlier, don't worry about it, just jump. Jesus says, I am with you always. Let the Lord sort out the results. Just share Christ with them. So you don't have to be a professional to make disciples. And thirdly, misconception number three, we make disciples through evangelism. We make disciples through evangelism. To be clear, we start here. Evangelism is the beginning. We call it the starting block. This is where the race begins. But this passage this morning is about more than evangelism. Again, notice how the three means clarify the main point. We make disciples. How? By go or going. By baptizing. And by teaching. You see, this charge to make disciples, it's, it's much more than just sharing the gospel. This is putting our arm around an unbeliever or a new believer and walking with them on this journey. It's you in your local church finding that someone who needs to be a disciple, who needs to follow Christ, who needs to grow. And it all begins with this one word we've explored. It's the word go. So I ask you this morning, where do you need to go this week? Is it the cubicle next door? Is it the cafeteria? Maybe it's as simple as an email or a phone call. We make disciples when we go. You and I, we need to go. Secondly, we make disciples when we baptize. God makes disciples when we baptize. It's our second point this morning. Baptism displays the believer's union with Christ. And it's one of the two ordinances that we are commanded to observe. Well, with baptism, we are putting on display this invisible reality. Something has happened in our soul and we're declaring that, we're showing that to the world. Faith has in, insepar inseparably linked us to Jesus. Paul has asked this, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death 
so that as Christ was raised through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. You have this picture of baptism in your mind. You go completely under the water, this full immersion. That's the depth of death we're dying to sin. Then you come up out of that water. That's the extent to newness of life. We are washed. That old life is washed off. We've left it dead in the water. And this is like a declaration to people watching. It says, I am now with Jesus Christ. John Piper illustrates this using, using a wedding ring. This is a symbol of something that has changed my life forever. In a good way. Jesus gave us baptism and Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper as ordinances. We might call them visual aids. Both of these were initiated by Jesus. Both were instructed by the apostles as you read through the New Testament. Both are patterns of the new church. In verse 19, we see here baptism is one means by which Jesus commands us to make disciples. As early as Acts 2, Peter's going to get up and he's going to preach a sermon. And he's going to call unbelieving Jews to believe in Jesus. He's going to say, repent or turn from your sins, turn from your wrong beliefs about God and believe in Jesus. He says, repent and be baptized. And the book of Acts then, as that book unfolds, it's going to be a pattern of people who are coming to faith in Jesus. They are being baptized. They're joining God's people. The direction of verse 19 is to the church, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This trinity may have something to do with the the role that each member played in your salvation. Notice how the the word is is name. It's a singular word. It's not names, but, but name. And again, it's interesting, this might point to the unity that you now have with the Godhead. We think about the Trinity. They they are indivisible. They are are in perfect harmony. So too are we now with God through faith in Jesus, represented in baptism. Well, all that to say, the application is if you've never been baptized, we would love to baptize you here at Emmanuel. And what we do is we sit down and we open up the Bible and we do a Bible study to see what what the Bible teaches us about baptism. We work through a study to know know what what you're pursuing, what you're getting into. And to the rest of us, if you've been baptized, never forget your baptism. I recall mine from time to time. I remember when I was baptized, I invited friends from the new life new Christian friends, and even friends from my old life came, which was a great testimony to them, I think. But the point is, as we think about these ordinances with the Lord's Supper, for example, we we take the Lord's Supper repetitiously. We'll take it every few Sundays. But with baptism, that's something that we we do one time. I think it's special. We need to, to hold on to that and remember this union we have with Christ. So one means that God uses to make disciples is baptism. Well, thirdly, we've talked about going, baptizing. Thirdly, God makes disciples when we teach. God makes disciples when we teach. We're looking at verse 20. How do we make disciples? 
teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And we're going to follow our three verbs to, to, to flesh this out. To teach is to provide instruction. We get that, right? We understand what it means to teach. But who is to teach? At which point you point and reply, you are. Or Jonathan, or an elder, all of that is also true. Ephesians 4.11 teaches us that Jesus gave the church teachers. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, an elder must be able to teach. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, teaching is a spiritual gift, meaning that, that some people are particularly gifted in explaining and uh, applying the word of God. And to be clear, all elders must be teachers, but not all teachers must be elders. There's people amongst the church, who, um, men and women both, who are just gifted in teaching. And they ought to be teaching as well. So some of you this morning have the gift to teach. You should teach. Some of you do not have the gift of teaching. You should teach. You see, if you want to take this passage seriously, you need to be teaching. A disciple makes disciples. Again, it's at this point that we need to set aside and discourage this Western idea of discipleship. Teachers are paid professionals. No, that is not in the Bible. Listen to what is. In the Bible, every parent is a teacher. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Do not forsake your mother's teaching, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8. Solomon says that moms and dads are to be feeding their children wisdom, making disciples. In the Bible, every dad is a teacher. I want to underscore this. Every dad is a teacher. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, says Moses. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. I mean, here's a call for, for these dads, and very early on in the history of the Hebrew people, to, to be communicating with their children wherever they are. Maybe it's, you know, in our day, we don't have a set uh, lesson plan, but I'm just walking along. I'm working in the garage. I'm in the living room, talking, communicating to our children about the truths of God. And even better yet, with this passage here, do you know on the campus in which these dads learned the word of God? This is Deuteronomy 6. They were in the wilderness. Dads, you've all walked through a wilderness. You have things you can share with your children about the glory of God as you've walked there. Make disciples. In the Bible, every mother and every grandmother is a teacher. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois, and in your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. Paul writes here to a man named Timothy. And Timothy learned the faith. He came to faith through the influence of his mother and his grandmother. It's not because he bumped up against them in the kitchen. It's because they communicated the word of God to him. They verbalized it. They taught him. And I'll tell you this morning that what children need more than anything 
are parents and grandparents who share the gospel. Make disciples. What else does the Bible teach? The Bible teaches that older women are teachers. Titus chapter 2, verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. Now that's verse 3. I didn't read you verse 4, but verse 4 is the purpose. The purpose to hold together marriages and families. Older women teach younger women how to do this. Making disciples. Let me ask you this. Did you sing this morning? Every singer is a teacher. Colossians chapter 3 verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Listen, when you and I get up to sing, we are singing to God. We are facing the screen, thinking about the words. But you know who else we're singing to? One another. We ought to not only be singing, maybe working on our pitch, I get that. But we ought to be listening as well. Because we're singing to each other, we are learning, we're to be teaching and receiving that teaching from each other in the room. Making disciples. And listen, if you're still trying to sneak out the back on this idea of teaching, Hebrews chapter 5 verse 12, everyone is a teacher. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, writes the author, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. Here's the author of Hebrews identifying that in the church there are people who have heard the word but have not grown. They have not taught the word. And this is concerning him. Here are people who have heard the word of God, at least to a degree, they are qualified enough to teach, to teach someone, to teach someone something. All should teach to make disciples. So that is the word teach. What are you supposed to teach? That's our second word, our second verb, teach to observe. If you love me, Jesus said, you will obey or you will observe my commandments. It gives you an idea about what we're teaching to observe. It's more than just look at or watch. It's some kind of practice or discipline. In fact, we encountered this word back in chapter 28, verse 4. See if you can find this word. It's not the word teach in our English Bibles. It appears as a different word. It's the same Greek word, and there it appears as the word guard. Guard. It's the same Greek word translated observed. And I think that's a helpful illustration. Because if you think about the activity of, of, of the soldier or the guard in that passage, it gives us some idea about how we ought to live the Christian life, how to teach. There's a level of responsibility. There's some level of duty involved. Uh, we're, we're serving someone else. We're reporting to someone else, namely the Lord. So this is how we make disciples. We teach them to observe. And then what does he say lastly? All that I commanded you. All that I commanded you. And here's the rub. When you set out to teach, you're going to be tempted to discard the hard stuff. To set aside the kind of teachings that are politically incorrect, that are hard to understand, 
that are potentially offensive. And I think that's oftentimes why we struggle to share the gospel, because the gospel's offensive. But you can do this. Be gracious, be gentle, but be bold. Be honest in your assessment. Bring biblical truth to bear, even if it's hard for people to hear. So the big question then this morning is, who do I teach? Well, I think we've learned, moms and dads, we begin with our children. We begin perhaps reading just a few verses in the evening. Maybe a paragraph from the Bible. Maybe explaining as much as we might know about that to our children. There's study Bibles nowadays have great footnotes and they explain things. We have great resources downstairs in our library. These are the kinds of things that any of us can use for trying to communicate the truth of the Word of God. Here at Emmanuel, we have men's and women's groups. Uh, these groups are Bible study-based groups, and these groups have teachers, but within these groups, it's an interactive format. There's teaching going on. Uh, people are learning from one another as they're sharing and asking questions and answering those questions. Teaching is happening at that level. And we always need here, I hope it's not a shameless plug, but help in Awana and nursery and Sunday school. We need to be teaching kids in, in those ministries as well. That's a great opportunity to fulfill this command. So the question I believe then as we leave Matthew is, will we make disciples? Going and baptizing, teaching. I would say that what we heard today were hardly famous last words, but rather famous opening words. I think we often speak about the death and resurrection of Jesus in terms of completion, which is true. Much was accomplished at the cross. Uh, you and I think about uh, faith in Jesus and how that brings forgiveness before God and eternal life forever. Uh, the sin that we had that separated us from God, it's now removed and gone. These things are completed. So in essence, yes, in a way, it's true that, that things were completed at the cross. But that's not the end either. It's just the start. Matthew closes his gospel with a start. You see, the words of Jesus this morning are famous for what they call you and I too to come and do, and it's to make disciples. In fact, if you are a disciple, you are to make disciples. It doesn't matter what your gifting is, or your eloquence, or your vocation, or your schedule, or your maturity. All of us, wherever we are, God can use us, and God will use us if we jump, if we step out in faith, and we go forth to make disciples. In fact, the future of this church depends on it, and your obedience before God depends on it. Amen. And boy, we depend on Christ for this. Do we not? We just want to close here where Matthew does with the words of Jesus. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's to say that Christ will be with you. If you will do this, Christ will be with you. He will supply what you need to fulfill what he's called you to do. And he's going to be with you when you feel success and with you when you feel failure. He'll be with you when you rejoice. 
He'll be with you when you suffer. He'll be with you when you are afraid. He'll be with you when you're brave. That's our Lord. Because you see, our lives in Christ, they are not the end. It's the beginning. This is a start to a whole new way of living. For you and I to now go and and be disciples. And for you and I to go and make disciples. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for these final words. We know in many ways they are just the beginning. Because when you saved us and called us, you called us to something special. Father, we confess that we are insufficient for this work and at times intimidated. We're uncertain in our speech and in our approach. And sometimes, Lord, we just don't feel very good at any of these things. But I pray for your people today that they would be emboldened and they would be courageous and that they would be brave and that your Holy Spirit would give them a confidence to know that not only can they do this, but I bet many can do it well. Oh, Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the gospel of Matthew. And thank you for the work you've done in this church through it. We love you and pray these things in his name. Amen.